This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Jump Statistical Discovery Software from SAS. Jump, spelled J-M-P, is an easy-to-use tool that connects powerful analytics with interactive graphics. The drag-and-drop interface of Jump enables quick exploration of data to identify patterns, interactions, and outliers. Jump has a scripting language for reproducibility and interfacing with R. Click on this episode's sponsored link to receive a free info kit that includes an interview with DataViz experts Kaiser Fung and Alberto Cairo. In the interview, they discuss information gathering, analysis, and communicating results. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabisch. Thanks for tuning in this week. Today's episode continues my month of story. We're going to be talking about data visualization and story again, of course, because I'm all in on story this month. But before we get to that, we are going to talk about lots of other cool projects with this week's guest, Jan Willem Tulp from Tulp Interactive. Jan Willem, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you? I'm uh, really good. Yeah. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm good. Springtime in the Netherlands there? Today, yes. <laughs> Yesterday, <laughs> not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, you've been doing some, some very cool stuff, obviously, for a long time. Some interesting work with Scientific American that, I don't know, may, that may be some of the stuff that most people know you for, the great products you've done with them. Um, mm-hmm. And you're also doing some cool stuff with Google this year. But um, before we dive in and talk about all the good work you're doing. Can we start with maybe you sort of give folks an introduction to who you are, where you came from, and what you're doing now? Sure. So, yeah, I live in the Netherlands, in The Hague, and um, I've been doing data visualization for six years now. Before that, I worked as a software engineer. I studied interaction design because I wanted to do both design and software. (laughs) And right now, that's what I'm doing. Basically, what I do is I create custom data visualizations, and for me, that means um, well, reading in some data set and writing custom software to visualize it to communicate insights. Great. And a lot of your work is both you do the interactive side and the static side as well, right? So I'm thinking of the uh, flavors visualization you did for Scientific American. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that visualization and then the process you go through when you're designing for both the static side and then the interactive side? Yeah, sure. But first, I must say that uh, it's primarily the magazines uh, where this is the case because usually they have a print version and uh, and a web uh, website as well. So usually... I start with the uh, the non the, the print version, uh, and later I will turn that into an interactive version because uh, the technology I use, web-based technology, uh, can easily be extended to turn web-based non-interactive visualization into an interactive visualization. So that's how how I arrange uh, the two parts, uh, the two visualizations. Um, and when I usually get started, especially for the uh, the Scientific American uh, projects, uh, usually they have some data sets. Um, usually they also know what they would like to uh, see in a visualization. But other than that, they just leave me completely free. Well, <laughs> most of the time, <laughs> they leave me completely free to come up with a, <laughs> with a visualization that's, uh, well, uh, that supports this goal and this idea they have in mind. And, uh, and then so I, I start experimenting. And usually uh, this means that I usually try to visualize the data set as quickly as possible because I need to get a sense of how a data set works visually. Does it have lots of overlap? What's the, the spread of data points? Uh, things like that. And 
this usually generates some new ideas and uh, and I can see what works and what doesn't work. And so basically coming up with the end result is actually creating a lot of visualizations that's an improvement of the previous one. So I constantly uh, look at what I have in front of me uh, on the screen and then um, see what can be improved, what doesn't work, and then build on that. And then finally I end up with the print version and then the next step is uh, obviously the interactive version. And the process is actually the same. So this does mean that for most clients, this works, uh, but it does require some kind of trust between a client and, and me in this case, because they are paying me to do something for which they don't know what the end result will yeah. look like. So yeah. that can be kind of tricky, but I think it's the the right way to do it because you really have to find out what works best for a particular data set. It's part of the process to, to figure this out. Right. So when you are moving from the static version to the interactive version, what are some of the decisions that you make in terms of how you guide a reader through the visualization? So there's obviously the user experience and the things that people can do um, that allows them more of the control than when they have the static version, when they have to trace it with their finger, they have to look. So what are some of the decisions you make with that sort of annotation layer when you move from a static visualization to the interactive visualization? Well, the thing is that with a static visualization, you you simply have to put all the information that you want to put in, in one single image. And this works, uh, but you usually have to make some decision on, well, we have to exclude this because otherwise it becomes too complex or, um, well, this doesn't work because it requires a different view or something like that. And Using interactivity, you can include different views of the same data set. You can remove or reduce the complexity by allowing users to filter uh, data. Uh, you can zoom in or, or uh, highlight certain parts of a visualization that may be interesting. And those are all kinds of things that you cannot do when you just have a static visualization because then everything has to be clear all at once. And, and so basically... When I discuss this with with uh, with a client uh, or Scientific American in this case, then then we usually come to the conclusion together from based on the static visualization. Okay, this might be a good way to add the interactivity because this really adds something. Or did one with exoplanets, for instance, and there were two views. One more was uh, two hemispheres, and that was also in the print version. But for the interactive version, you could also switch to a view where you saw the planets based on the distance from the sun. And mm-hmm. so that's that's another dimension which we were not able to include in the print version, but we were able to include in the interactive version. Oh, interesting, interesting. Um, very cool. So let's talk about uh, some of the recent projects you've been working on and, and some upcoming work. So I know you've done some really cool work with Google, and I know they're working with Alberto Cairo and Simon Rogers and, and the folks from Accurate. So can you talk a little bit about the work you've been doing with them and what you've been working on and how it's how it is working with teams of folks all over the place? <laughs> uh well, well, in my case, my uh, uh, my direct contact was Alberto Cairo, and uh, and he he was my sparring partner, <laughs> um, <laughs> so to say. So um, yeah, and other than that, uh, it's actually really uh, great working for Google because basically what they say is, uh, uh, well, if you have a great idea, um, well, you can do it as long as it includes search data. So right, yeah, I actually came up with my own. 
idea. And my idea, I collect all kinds of ideas. I have a very long list of uh, <laughs> to-do projects. Yeah, yeah. And, and this came from this list. And it was actually based on an idea I had for, uh, well, the queen in the Netherlands, uh, or the king, right? We <laughs> have a king. Uh, he also has a speech every year about, uh, well, the state of affairs and, and the country, things like that. And and I was just interested in how does it evolve over time? Because you can find those speeches uh, from 100 years, I think. So, and it's every year. So, so what do they talk about? How does it change over time? And after discussing this with uh, Simon and Alberto, um, we we came to the conclusion that this could also work for. Uh, well, first we had historical speeches, but then we narrowed it down to uh, inauguration speeches. So that's what I focused on. But it was also a little bit tricky because uh, inauguration speech is really about all kinds of topics from. Yeah economy from military to foreign affairs from everything so it was kind of difficult to really get a sense of uh, how does it evolve over time mm -hmm. but um, and uh, also uh, I had to work with the um, uh, Google search API mm -hmm. and there were some things I was really interested in like uh, combinations of, of words that well when I put it in the API I didn't get any results so I really had to use the uh, entities the main keywords of a speech yeah in the end I think it worked out really nice so yeah I was able to organize them by theme uh, and then you could see uh, for the different presidents what they were talking about. And you can see some very interesting insights. So, for instance, uh, Ronald Reagan, he, he really uses much more words related to the Cold War, like mm -hmm. nuclear weapons and things like that, which which doesn't occur with the other presidents. So, mm -hmm. yeah, in the end, it, I really like the, the, the end result. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the challenges with analyzing and visualizing text? I think this is a common question a lot of people have either taking text and trying to make it quantitative or visualizing qualitative data. I think a lot of people sort of like probably gravitate towards word clouds right away and like, you know, that's where they start. But, but what is your approach when you are analyzing and then trying to visualize text? Well, the, the, it is definitely a challenge because the, the thing is that when text is your data um, and you want to understand it, well, directly, well, words are things that you have to read. So it also takes up a lot of space. So you have to try to come up with something that is a measurement of these words. So word length of the number of words in a sentence or something like that, or sentiment or uh, something like that. I think one of the things that you can do is have different information layers. Mm. I also did it at the, the Google uh, project. So the overview allows you to see the speech, the total speech, and then you have one. It's actually a column with all uh, rectangles and each rectangle is is a sentence and the the height of the rectangle is based on the length of the sentence or the, the number of words in a sentence mm -hmm. but if you hover over it you can actually read it so that's actually two levels of information the first one is the high level so how long is it how long are the words and then if you want to see more details then you can uh, hover over with your mouse and then you can read the, the actual text and mm -hmm. i think this is in general one way at least that you can approach text-based visualization to come up with some kind of metric or an abstraction of the text that you can summarize it and then give an overview and if you want to see more details then you can zoom in or, or hover over and see the details right 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 yeah i think the, the qualitative data visualization is still a big challenge for lots of people and yeah. I, with text obviously you have semantic issues as well um yeah um and it, and it seems like you tried to 
parse all of that out and, and dive into that. So um, that's an interesting challenge. And I'll, of course, link to that project on the show notes so people can take a look. Um, mm-hmm. I want to talk about uh, maybe one or two projects that you have coming up. You have um, an interesting one on more flavor maps, right? With someone right. in New York? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I think it's still an untitled uh, book, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a chef who's uh, a quite successful chef and he also teaches uh, at a school and he also wrote other books and he's right now working on a book about flavor maps, which is supposed to be used by people actually in the kitchen. Uh, and so, so some of the publishers actually used my visualization in, a, in oh, the kitchen as a nice. test case, which which luckily was successful. So <laughs> uh, that was that was nice. But yeah, the the main idea is that different foods go well together or don't go well together. And uh, this book is all about those connections between foods. And uh, so what I've done is I've created sixty visualizations. Basically, they're all the same each time with one central food. And for each central food, you can see how well they go together with secondary food and they, they're categorized and, and things like that. And so, the, yeah, that's very interesting. And uh, I've done, uh, yeah, you mentioned it, a similar project for Scientific American, right, right. which, and uh, the approach is actually quite interesting because the Scientific American project was really only based on chemical uh, structure. So the chemical mm-hmm. compounds that different foods share. But in this project, uh, he's a he's a chef, right. so he also he also knows from experience and his knowledge things that go well together and how you sh- should better categorize groups and uh, foods and things like that. So it's really interesting to see that he, well, he sometimes comes back and no, you should put this over there because it's it's that fits much better. And yeah, so, yeah. so it's it's really interesting uh, to see this process and the difference. Do you view a visualization? that someone is going to use for say cooking differently than a visualization that someone will use for learning or information. So the scientific American piece was the network of flavors, but it was for people to sort of view and look at and understand how these things match or don't match up. Whereas it sounds like this book is more for actual like use in the kitchen. When you approach these two visualizations, do you, do you think of them differently? Is that the the audience is going to use them differently? Um, I think, I think it it does, yeah. Uh, I, I for the Scientific American uh, project, I did receive some emails from people who were who were also going to try out new recipes based on this visualization. Oh, okay. But yeah, I think because the Scientific American one is really uh, an overview of all the foods all together, and you can you can explore the connections between the foods. Yeah. It's really more for understanding how these connections work and things like that. And but this one is really focused on one central ingredient for each visualization. So in in that sense, uh, I would say that this one is really more for actual use in the kitchen. So right. you, I'm working with potatoes right now. What goes well with potatoes? Right. So it really answers one very clear question. Yeah, your task of cooking this meal. Right. Right. Interesting. Right. Very interesting. Well, wait. Let's talk about one more project before I sure. I quiz you on stories and what that means. <laughs> sure. um, you were telling me before we started about the project you're doing for an architecture museum in the Netherlands. You want to talk about that a yeah. little bit? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's actually one of the the, the, the greatest. Well, uh, <laughs> I actually have quite a, quite a few really nice projects at the moment, but this is this yeah, one is really like nice, it. I it think. It sounds like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't even told you everything yet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, this one is really nice because... Personally, I really like the project where a client 
kind of sets a, a higher level goal and not very specific so that there's room for playing with the data. So this architecture in the Netherlands, they well, they claim to have the largest architecture archive in the world. So, and their archive uh, <laughs> uh, contains archives. They have different archives from architects or, uh, or architecture institutes or whatever. So they have this collection of archives and they just want to know what does this archive look like. So uh, the people who work with this archive, when they uh, acquire a new archive, all they have to do is, is fill out a lot of big forms uh, to enter metadata and, and, and to structure it and, and to put it into their system. And that's it. And on the website, you can search it and you have to be very specific on, on what you're searching for. But yeah, the, one of the, the values, of course, of data visualization is to get an overview and get and see some patterns and get some understanding of what are we dealing with. So right. the, what I'm doing right now is um, looking at all these archives I'm having two approaches. The first one is uh, the structure of the archives because every archive is uh, organized according to a tree structure, but some are, are nine levels deep, some are one level deep, some have 5,000 elements, some have three. Wow. So there's really big variety in, in, in the structure of the archives themselves. And the other thing is the, the topics. What, what are they about? And um, this is also quite interesting uh, with regards to what I, the effort that I have to do because there's a lot of manual data editing wow. and so not very much structured. L let's just say that most of the, the metadata I'm currently uh, acquiring myself by extracting words from titles, which every node in the tree structures have. And I'm, I'm splitting up words that are a combination of words, but... I'm almost there yet, and it's almost a million words that I'm going through. <laughs> so I can uh, see it, you getting tired as you're talking about this. Yeah, but, <laughs> um, yes and no. It, it's a lot of work, but at the same time, I'm really close to getting at a point where I'm really going to see something nobody has seen before because yeah. they don't have this information. So I'm still very motivated because, yeah, now you're going to see this is, these archives are going to be about forms and these are going to be about uh, these types of buildings. And mm -hmm. that's what you can get from it. And, yeah, that's really nice. And they also want it to be a cool-looking visualization. I mean, they even think about preparing a room in a museum where they can show this visualization. So, yeah, I'm really motivated. Yeah, to, that's uh, really cool. So it'd be an actual exhibit yeah. in the in the museum. Right, yeah, right. That's very cool. Um, yeah. Very good. Well, um, we'll look forward to seeing both of those projects coming up um, shortly. So before we close up, I want to quiz you on stories because I'm calling this my month of story because I've uh, been doing a lot of reading about telling stories and stories with data. And, you know, I have my own sort of view, but I don't want to tell you my view. I want to get your <laughs> thoughts on this idea of telling stories with data. I mean, a lot of your work, I would sort of argue is more are exploratory pieces, either static or, or interactive. When you hear or think of, of telling stories with data, what comes to mind? What, what do you think about? And, and, and sort of a, a follow-up question is, do you think that phrase data stories or telling stories with data, do you think that's overused? Do you think we're actually doing that? You know, I'm just kind of leaving this open, but no. <laughs> well, it was. A, I I really like uh, that you you wanted to talk about this because I've given it some thought in the past, and uh, that you mentioned it yesterday, and I yeah. gave it some more thought. And because before yesterday, actually, my 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 idea was storytelling with data. It, you cannot really do it. It's it's actually just a collection of insights, and that's it. But 
I gave it some more thought since yesterday, so maybe my thoughts are not. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to give it maybe some more thought. But there are two things to storytelling. So the first one is story. And you often hear people say that we have to find a story in a data. But I don't think that you can find a story in the data. That's simply not possible because storytelling, it, well, obviously it comes from literary storytelling and it's from reading a book. And in a book, so the writer explicitly wrote down a story. So that story is there and you can read it over and over and it's the same story. And that's, that's really a story. What you're doing with uh, finding a story in data is, is actually you're trying to find insights. And if you have those insights you try to find some kind of connection between these insights. And I think when you have that, that, is, that could be a story. Mm -hmm. Now, for literary stories, what connects them, it, what you have there is, is basically a, a collection of events connected by time. But with data, it can be a collection of insights connected by, well, whatever. Right. And... Uh, in that sense, I think you can have a story with data. Now, the other part of storytelling is telling. And that's also a very important part, I think, because without telling, it's not really storytelling. You're, you're still just showing collection of insights. Right. And when you're uh, telling a story, you are really thinking about how to structure these insights. How do I communicate those insights? Um, maybe... Uh, what's, sequentially, maybe in parallel, maybe in other ways, but you are structuring these insights in, in such a way that it really becomes some kind of, well, uh, well story or whatever. Right, right. So, so now that I've given it some more thought, I think you can, you do have storytelling with data, but yeah. it, it is kind of the characteristics of literary storytelling apply to data. Oh, and, and one other thing is that in literary stories, you you uh, well, you clearly have uh, main characters, and they go through some adventure and, and and things like that. And I thought, well, in data, you don't have really have characters. But if you take, for instance, uh, well, let's say the, the gross national product of a country, and you look at it over time, well, then your main character is the gross national product, and it it goes through. Uh, well, in this case, time is the connector. Yeah. Uh, so I think you also do have character. So it's kind of the, the topic or the, the, the thing that you're trying to visualize. Yeah, I, I think most of that is, is right on. I think, um, you know, the, the other thing that, I, that I've been sort of playing with in my head is whether – I think the gross national product is a good, a good example because um, that is sort of an aggregate statistic. So it's sort of hard – if you wanted to couch those numbers in a story, in a traditional literary story, it would be hard to do. Um, right. Because then the – protagonist, I guess, would be like the country. And that's, it's, it's yeah. hard, harder to connect with that. And so in that case, I wonder whether the protagonist becomes the creator of the visualization. Um, hmm. And in some level, I wonder if as creators of visualizations, we're always a protagonist because as you said, you're looking at data, you're pulling out insights, and then you're stringing those insights together. And so is it always the case that we as the creators are the protagonists for better, or for worse, because we're adding our own perspectives and biases and yeah well it's it's well at least it, it's not that the, the data itself actually doesn't it, it's not a story it, it's right. you who decide yeah. what is the story right and so it's your interpretation of of a, a collection of insights which you also determine that that happens to be an insight yeah. which is also 
uh, well. Yeah, I mean, so, what, yeah. Yeah, what's really interesting about it in, in some ways, just to sort of like, I guess, step back is, you know, we download or capture some survey data and mm-hmm. people have answered the survey and then we sort of forget, I mean, at least in what I do is I just forget about that those people <laughs> like really exist, right? right. Those people all have their own stories, but we sort of just forget about it and we look at these people and, and they do have their stories, but then we... As you mentioned earlier, you try to like get this top view. So you are kind of summarizing it. But I mean, I'm trying to ultimately make this argument that like, I think we, we probably agree, which is unfortunate because I'm agreeing with everybody. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but you know, that, that those are not, those are not stories when we are stringing those together that it requires something else that I would hypothesize. I think that most people who are sort of data analysts are not comfortable with or familiar with for lots of different reasons that we don't need to talk about. But, um, I guess the other question I would ask is, do you think then given the three sort of pieces that you talked about of, of that, it has to be a story and you have to tell it. And um, do you think that the word story is then overused in the field and that we should mm. be careful with it or it's okay? Cause everyone's like, ah, I know what a story is. It's okay. Don't, you know, don't get all worried about it. I don't know, but well, at least I think a story with data is a little bit different from a literary story. So yeah. if, it, it gives you some kind of expectation. Okay, we do storytelling, so you you automatically think of literary stories, but that's not really what it is. Right. It, it's it's concepts from literary storytelling applied to, applied to data. well, and and the visualization itself also is not really well. It that is also not the story. You are telling the story, and you're using the visualization to support your story with images or right. something like that. So, right. So the story is actually non-existent. It's all only you chose it, and it's supported by visuals, and yeah. so it's it's an implicit story, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for the type of visualization, how that relates to story, whether it be a literary yeah. definition or, or a different definition, where you have animation versus static versus interactivity, and how those always sort of relate to to story. Right. When you are, uh, let let me let me sort of close up with this. Well, do you think about uh, story and whatever, however you want to define story? Um, do you think about story when you are creating static versus interactive uh, visualizations and, and allowing people to take their own path through the visualization? Um, yeah, but it's. Uh, I must say that I think in general that I don't really think of telling it as a story or something, but it's more... Yeah, I think in general I would say that uh, I see a lot of trade-offs on many different aspects. So how effective should it be or should I compromise some effectiveness for the sake of uh, aesthetics or something? Mm -hmm. Should I uh, make it interactive or not? How much interactivity should I uh, explain this extensively or just make a small label? And, And so, yeah, for me it's all a combination of all kinds of trade-offs and decisions of how to find a balance between all kinds of things actually. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And and so so it's it's for me it's not really I have this set of insights and we're going to tell this story like this. It's really we have this set of insights. How are we going to guide the user through these insights that we well, uh, explain it or communicate it in such a way that he understands it or likes it or whatever. Right. So, so I I think that's in my mind that's more the the way that so, I approach projects. And in your mind, that's less of story and more of 
navigation or, or narration or a path through the, through the data. Right. I think yeah. in the end, you can come to the conclusion, you build a storytelling visualization. But yeah. for me, in the process of creating it, it was more uh, thinking about how to navigate through it, how to annotate it and things like that. Right. Very good. Wow. Okay. So this is just the beginning. So next time we next time we see each other, we'll <laughs> right. sit down with a big beer and, and hash this out some more. Um, yeah. uh, Jan Willem, you've got some very cool projects that you've obviously already done and are coming out. So we'll look forward to that. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you too. And thanks to everyone for tuning into this week's episode. Uh, the month of story continues for another couple of weeks. So be sure to tune back in. So until next time, this has been the Policy of His podcast. Thanks so much for listening. This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Jump Statistical Discovery Software from SAS. Jump, spelled J-M-P, is an easy-to-use tool that connects powerful analytics with interactive graphics. The drag-and-drop interface of Jump enables quick exploration of data to identify patterns, interactions, and outliers. Jump has a scripting language for reproducibility and interfacing with R. Click on this episode's sponsored link to receive a free info kit that includes an interview with DataViz experts Kaiser Fung and Alberto Cairo. In the interview, they discuss information gathering, analysis, and communicating results.